This is episode 43 of Dave's Daredevil podcast featuring Dr. Doom taking on the accursed Fantastic Four, but he didn't count on a certain blind superhero showing up. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 43. This is the show about Daredevil week in, week out, with a little Fantastic Four thrown in this week. I am your host, J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. Before we dive into things, I do want to address something, because I want to make sure I'm transparent with you putting everything on Front Street. We just came off of a hiatus. Yes, I'm aware of that. There will be one more hiatus. Now, it's it's way down the line. Don't panic. It's, it'll be after episode 100. The current plan, of course, always subject to change, is reach episode 100, which would bring us through Born Again, and then I'll take a break for a few months, just to get my head together, keep the creative juices flowing. And episode 100 would effectively end volume one of Dave's Daredevil podcast, and we would begin volume two after that. Now bear in mind, that's 46 episodes away. It'll bring us to a natural stopping point, and probably between the two volumes, I'll have a few specials, things of that nature. But the current plan is to take a break after episode 100. Again, 46 episodes away, we got a while. But I do want to make sure I keep you completely aware, keep you on the same page, and I'll talk about this from time to time a little bit further down the line. But no need to stress, it's all part of the plan. Just to set up this next little bit, I just want to let you know the context. Recently, I was in Kansas City, happened to be outside the theater where I actually saw Daredevil the movie. And when I started the car, Evanescence and Bring Me to Life came on the radio, and I realized I could be using this preamble time to do a heartfelt defense of the 2003 movie, and it will be a warts and all defense. I mean, there's no real defense for the flaming double Ds or the playground scene that was just bad and worse. But this is a movie that I like a lot. It means something to me. It meant my boy was finally getting his due on a big screen. Originally, I planned on doing commentary for both versions of the movie, the theatrical and the director's cut. But I feel like here, discussing the movie, before we really get into the comics from week to week for an indeterminate amount of episodes, is a better way to use our time. So this week, to begin this, let me dispel a couple of things that are misconceived about this movie. Daredevil is often looked at as a box office bomb. That is wrong. It was made on a budget of about $78 million, which was way up from what they entered the entire movie with. Originally, Mark Stephen Johnson, the director and writer, was going to make a smaller indie-style movie, but, well, studios wanted to balloon it up. The movie made $178 million. It made a profit of $100 million. It was number one for two weeks in a row. It had a $45 million opening weekend. I know what you're thinking. Compared to something like Guardians of the Galaxy or Captain America the Winter Soldier, that's pretty paltry, but it wasn't a summer tentpole. The movie came out in February, which may indicate a little bit of a lack of confidence in it, but I think it was the smarter way to go since Daredevil's not a marquee name. He's not Iron Man. He's not Captain America the Hulk. But the movies had this this aura, these detractors, including Stan Lee. Stan Lee was a detractor who called the film too tragic. 
Well, I'm going to have to disagree with Stan the Man, because really when you look at it, Spider-Man, which came out months before that, was more tragic. That featured Uncle Ben's death, the fact that Peter's parents were gone, the death of a subsequent father figure, Peter walking away from love, pretty much on par, guys. In the movie, we lose Jack Murdoch, Elektra, but the villain gets caught, doesn't get killed. Really, Daredevil the movie is a better story because it's about a hard-earned victory. It's a tough tale about a man who is more limited than Spider-Man learning to be a hero. So I want to say that right up front, and then I'll continue these thoughts a little bit further, but... Most importantly, the biggest detractor I have was Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, who said he was ashamed of the movie, felt ridiculous. Well, let's lower the lights for a moment, and let's put on some mood music, and I'm going to give Ben Affleck a special message from Dave to Ben. Dear little Benny Affleck, I just want to remind you, you got this role by choice. You got a paycheck for it, you met your wife through this movie, and you claim to be a fan of the character. Now sure, your buddy Kevin Smith may have pushed you to do it, not sure... And while most of the fans were rooting for Matt Damon, who was admittedly a better choice for Daredevil, you signed your name of your own free will on that contract and showed up for work. To say that you regret this headlining role, well, Ben, let me remind you that Reindeer Games, Forces of Nature, and Pearl Harbor preceded it. Geely, Jersey Girl, and Surviving Christmas followed it. To say that this is the movie that you single out as your regret, and to outright insist that you will never play a superhero, then sign on as Batman, well, you've squandered any goodwill I might wish you because you gave me and other fans who have been your supporters through all of this the middle finger. Many fans, yes, they will detract from that movie. However, many fans will also defend that Affleck was fine. Not the ideal choice, but fine. But Ben, you regret Daredevil above Reindeer Games. Reindeer Games is a movie with Charlie's Theron in it that I can't watch. Well, little Benny Affleck, this series of episodes is dedicated to you with disdain from me. I want these episodes and this defense over the next few weeks to stand as a big, fat f*** you. Love and kisses, Dave. Alright, let's bring the lights back up. Again, I'm going to be putting some more of these random thoughts in at the beginning of episodes over the next few weeks. We'll talk more about the Daredevil movie and why I think it is much better than people give it credit for. However, we have a comic to cover. That's our main bit of business here. And we have a cliffhanger to pick up on that. When we last left our hero, he had met up with a depowered Fantastic Four only to see Doctor Doom take over their headquarters, the Baxter Building. Helping Marvel's first family, Daredevil played decoy to allow them to scatter and make their way to home. And that is where we will be picking up after this podcast promo for Michael Bradley's Superman and Batman podcast, of which he had me on as a guest in late November. Definitely go check that out at greatcrypton.com, and here is the promo for the show I just plugged. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. Man of Tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. 
celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we are back to cover Fantastic Four number 40 to pick up from last week. Of course, this would be the July 1965 cover date. And it features a Kirby cover showing the fully powered Fantastic Four battling Dr. Doom as Daredevil remains helpless in Doom's clutches. Doom fires a futuristic gun, melting a set of stairs that the Thing has in his hand. While on the stairs, Sue lays passed out, draped over Reed's arm, and Johnny hurls a fireball. The cover copy reads, Dr. Doom, more diabolical, more deadly than ever before. And don't miss the Thing's epic hand-to-hand fight with desperate Dr. Doom. I don't want to speak ill of Kirby. It's hard because he's so revered, but this cover is a mess. Doom looks incredibly stiff, and the FF are fighting him, yet they're facing us. And I know we want to feature the characters, we want to see them, but there are better ways to compose this. The melting effect is great on the stairs, and the figure work, with the exception of Doom, is on par, but as a total composition, it just falls apart. It makes no sense. And come on, Sue was passed out for Pete's sake. How much misogyny can you fit in a cover? And the whole potential danger of the scene is wasted as it's not immediately clear that these are stairs in Ben's hand and that the FF are standing on it. It took a long time of staring at this cover to break it down. It's just, it's a confusing mess. Now the story inside this cover is The Battle of the Baxter Building, written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Artie Simic. And if you don't want to shell out big bucks for an early issue of the Fantastic Four, find it reprinted. You can find it in Marvel's Greatest Comics number 31, Marvel Masterworks Volume 21, Fantastic Four Volume 4 hardcover, Essential Fantastic Four Volume 2, Villainy of Doctor Doom trade paperback, The Best of the Fantastic Four hardcover, and The Fantastic Four Omnibus Volume 2. So let's pick up where we left off and take a look at the first leg of this story. Having realized that the Fantastic Four are powerless, Doctor Doom launches a flying camera from the Baxter Building. The camera uses its homing abilities to locate and pursue Mr. Fantastic and Daredevil on the streets. Daredevil uses his billy club as a rifle. No, you actually heard that right. He uses it as a rifle and shoots the flying camera out of the sky. Then Daredevil swings off to the sky to be a decoy for the FF once again. Sue and Johnny catch up to Reed in their presumably borrowed or stolen car, and the three make it to the Baxter Building's entrance, which is barricaded by police. As soon as the three heroes enter the lobby, the building's defenses are turned against them, blasting electric bolts at them. On the top floor, Daredevil arrives and grapples with Doctor Doom with his billy club, and Doom tries throwing large machines at the man without fear, and marvels as Daredevil deftly dodges them. But when he deploys a miniature rocket ship at Daredevil, Doom begins to suspect that Daredevil's employing more than mere vision, and he nearly figures out the secret to Daredevil's feats. Alright, stopping there for just a moment, we begin with this opening splash page that's a bit of a pinup, a secondary cover, which would have made a much better cover, actually. Basically, Doctor Doom stands on a model of the Baxter Building inside a miniature city. Doom is firing on the FF and DD who are hiding amongst the miniature buildings. It's actually very captivating. And sure, this may have thrown off the kids not understanding, making them wonder if they had all been giantized, but I dig it. 
And the story picks up in media res, but takes a huge caption to catch us up. It's actually a very simple catch-up, thankfully. Without much of an intro, Doom is already firing his flying camera, and people have different reactions to this flying camera as it makes its way zigging and zagging through the New York streets. Some think it's pretty cool. Others find it annoying. They feel like the FF are overstepping their bounds a bit. Which is kind of oddly symbolic of the privacy concerns of the 21st century. But it's not around for long because it catches up to Daredevil who shoots it with his billy club rifle. Yes, a rifle. We can add that to the list of ridiculous billy club items. It's one of two in this issue. And while the idea is ridiculous and I do not like it, I do not like the idea of turning the billy club into a rifle, but Kirby makes it look absolutely plausible in design. Daredevil opens some pins, attaches a few minor attachments such as a scope, he opens up a set of claws that rest against his shoulder. It looks plausible. You believe it. Doesn't mean you have to like it, but you believe it. And remember where we left off last week? Daredevil hanging by a thread, being a decoy. He was hanging by a wire, literally. And yet here we find him on the street with Reed. It's not quite a cop-out, but it is confusing as Daredevil then heads back to where we left him last week. I'm sure it's an easy no prize. He came down to check on Reed and then went back up. Fair enough. But I'm pretty sure that Sue and Johnny just stole a car. I think they're Grand Theft Autoing it. Bear in mind the FF aren't police. They don't have jurisdiction to commandeer cars in state of emergency. And to make it worse, this is a taxi cab they're stealing. The driver of the cab is nowhere to be seen. But Johnny seems to be driving it and Sue's in the passenger seat. Now Reed's hopping in and nobody asks where the car came from. I guess the FF can do whatever they want. They're like a Kardashian. And of course they arrive at the Baxter building and there's a ton of police there. This is a state of emergency, including some police on top of an awning over the door, which I'm not sure how they would have gotten up there. I don't see any ladders. I also don't see any function in them being up there, but what do I know? And this begs the question. I talked about Latveria last week. Just where is the Baxter building? Well, the 35-story building is listed as sitting at the corner of 42nd Street and Madison Avenue, so I fired up, as usual, Google Maps. And sure enough, there is a building there at 300 Madison Avenue, which is 38 stories. The thing that caught my eye was an atrium right at the entrance, looking very majestic, and the building actually does legitimately look like the Baxter building. Now, in real-world context, this would have put it not far from the real Marvel offices at the time, and it's not far from United Nations, Grand Central Station, or where I placed Fisk Tower. Now, the FF occupy the top five floors of the building, including their personal area, which has a theater, a recording studio, a fitness center and broadcast studio, and, of course, their personal rooms. Other offices occupy the remaining floors, which can be awkward when the thing and Medusa come tumbling down through the ceiling. But according to Marvel.com, the windows are two foot thick composites of various glasses and plastics, which are mirrored on the outside. Solid armored exterior walls are also mirror clad and are indistinguishable from transparent sections. The top five sections of the Baxter building are completely airtight. All doors are airlocks. Complete environmental support, including atmosphere, is provided by the area between elevators two, three, and four on all floors. The building's steel alloy framework is rigid enough to be stood on one corner and not deform. In short, this is a fortress. Now add Reed Richards' defense mechanisms, and it should be impenetrable. So that's why I think it's funny that the FF casually stroll right into the lobby like everything is cool. What a great plan. What? Reed Richards designed defenses. No need to prepare for those. Let's get blasted by electric bolts. Smart thinking, Reed. Now, while this is going on in the lobby, 
Daredevil is going head-to-head with Doom. Let's be honest, Daredevil is no physical match for the illustrious Doom. But right now he is sticking his neck out for people that he really doesn't know because he's a hero. And the action doesn't get very exciting, in fact it's kind of awkwardly drawn. But Doom almost puts together that Daredevil is working off of a radar sense. What stops Doom from putting that together? In my opinion, it would be like Lex Luthor and Burns Superman. Doom's arrogance simply will not let him admit that he's going up against and kind of being slightly outclassed by a blind man. But of course, Doom is using all of Reed's little toys like a miniature rocket-powered mini-saucer, which makes a cool weapon, but Doom is just totally taking advantage. It's going to be great at the end of the issue, off-panel, when they discover that Doom dropped a deuce in the personal bathroom. But I realized up until now I have not talked about Kirby's Daredevil, his rendition of The Man Without Fear. Kirby's is in model with Wally Wood. It just seems that he's using sharper features. Now Kirby overuses the shadows a bit. Again, the secret to Daredevil is the use and restraint of using shadows. And Kirby's musculature creates some weird angles when Daredevil dodges the rocket. Some things that don't look comfortable. Daredevil doesn't look well put together. But I'm also working off of a model of Gene Colan and John Romita and further artists who make Daredevil a smooth character. And again, Kirby's really an artist in transition. If you trace his evolution from the more Golden Age style, for example, Captain America Comics number one, to something like the Fourth World Saga, the difference is drastic. I wouldn't go as far as to say night and day different, unrecognizable, but drastic. So we've got a neat setup, we've jumped right in, it's got our attention, how does the story play out from here? I'm glad you asked. Let's jump into part two. In the Baxter Building's lobby, Ben arrives just in time to join his teammates in the elevator ride to the top floor. Luckily, Daredevil's distraction is enough to stop Doom from destroying the elevator car, allowing the FF to escape a fiery fate by a split second at the 34th floor. But when the team starts taking the stairs, they are thwarted when Doom destroys those steps. Daredevil continues to battle Doom, the FF finally, jury-rig the remnants of the stairs and get to the top floor to join the fight. In the midst of the fight, Reed snatches a high-tech gun called the Stimulator and fires it at Sue. And then as Doom gets his grip on Johnny, Reed uses the odd rays and the Human Torch reignites and flies in circles around Doom. But just as Doom looks to be cornered, he uses a freeze unit, coating the entire team and eyes, stopping them in their tracks. In a moment of desperation, Reed uses the machine, which he had the whole time. Yes, he had a machine to restore their power the whole damn time. But in a moment of desperation, Reed uses the machine on Ben to bring back the team's last hope, the thing. Alright, let's stop there again because this one had me raising my eyebrows. To begin with, we see the FF step into an elevator. Let me explain why that's not a good idea. You're stepping into a steel box held above a long drop when Doctor Doom is in full control of the building. Again, I thought Reed was supposed to be brilliant. And Reed offhandedly mentions the stimulator. He needs to get to the stimulator. Wait, what? That sounds lewd. Let me get to that in a moment. As Shrapnel begins flying, Daredevil has this telescoping flexi-shield in his billy club, the second weird invention in this issue. To really give you an accurate description, this thing is like a little cocktail umbrella, and it's going up against Shrapnel. Now he distracts Doom long enough to delay the destruction of the elevator, and it puts the FF in a position where they have exactly two seconds to get out of that elevator. You know, I'm no security expert, but two seconds? You know what the Frightful Four could do with two seconds? It's like putting a two meter wide thermal exhaust port near Death Star. Not the smartest move, I would have left that part out. 
And then, of course, the stairway attack button. Now, this is pre-Franklin, pre-child, pre-marriage, to be honest with you, as Reed and Sue are engaged at this point. But I kind of want to see the post-Baxter building when everything's child-proofed in the home and the thing's having a lot of trouble with the plastic power outlet caps. He just wants to plug in his boombox and listen to his tunes, and he can't get the thing open. But this place is a death trap. One wrong digit or soldered wire or one rat chewing on it, and Sue could be fried while bringing Reed his milk. But you know, I gotta give props to my boy. There's no shame in Daredevil's game. Daredevil's trying to take Doom head on, but not doing all that great. At best, he's holding his own, but Doom is one of the most powerful villains in the Marvel Universe. It's not like Daredevil's being overpowered by Angar the Screamer or something like that. It's Dr. Freakin' Doom. And then Ben doesn't do much better in his human form, and Doom doesn't even know who Ben is. That's gotta sting a little. And then there is the stimulator itself. It sounds like a personal massager that you would see on late night television right next to ads for call-in chat lines. But instead, it's actually a ray that amplifies power, and Reed invented this in issue 37 to be an amplifier. Let me reiterate, Reed had this the whole time. Reed was waiting for it to recharge. He never mentioned that he was just making stopgap measures with these machines. And sure, there was that off chance that it may not work, but Reed at least could have said, hey, 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 calm down. I'm Reed Richards, I've got this. Just wait a few days. But I guess Reed wants to keep his secrets because he doesn't trust anybody, should the thing ever turn against us. Which is kind of funny. I'll get to that a little bit later in the episode of why that's ironic. And of course, Johnny's reignited. I gotta be completely honest with you, I'm not a big Human Torch fan. Of the four, he's the one that interests me the least. Johnny just has this grating personality. He's always whining over whichever girl dumped him or whichever scroll he married by accident. That whole thing. But he was a connective tissue to the youth market. That way the youth could place themselves on the team, much like Robin. But to me, he seems like the character that has developed the least. And it's not fair to say that at an absolute idea, because he does progress forward from time to time, but he's always rolled back to this default position, the team's hothead. We get the allegory. We just don't need the allegory. For a good example of what I'm trying to say, the moment that showed his biggest progress was when he died a hero's death. And then when he returned, he's currently in the same exact mode as we see here. If Sue was an underserved character in the past who really gained her traction later down the road, this is somebody who's just been ignored the whole time. You can't even blame misogyny. For some reason, writers just don't want to put a lot of effort into Johnny. Ben, on the other hand, the Thing, who is forced to become that monster that he dreads, is probably the most interesting character. While Sue is my favorite member, Ben is the one that always captivated me a bit more right out of the box. Mainly because Ben and the Thing, they represent failure. The team became a team, became superpowered because of failure. The rocket flight was a failure because it ended badly. It crashed. They were bombarded by cosmic rays. Everybody was changed. And another level of failure is that Reed has never been able to turn Ben human again, not with any permanence. Now, of course, turning him human again in terms of marketing wouldn't be very fun. But story-wise, it's an absolute failure. It's a flag that the Fantastic Four came about through sad circumstances. Because Ben is trapped in this form. While Reed has the intellect, Johnny is a youthful vigor, Sue is the heart, the thing is the muscle, at the same time... Ben is the most maligned of the team. Sure, Reed can stretch, but he can also retract that. He can also be normal looking. Same thing with Johnny and Sue. Ben, however, can't walk down the street without scaring people. 
Ben is not only the muscle, he's the pathos. He's the humility. He's the constant reminder that even though the FF are the first family, they're still human and they are still dysfunctional, just like you and I. And that makes him as important to me as Sue is. And he's, right out of the box, he was a more fully realized character. He's funny, he's charming, he's caring, but he's sad and lonely. He's a little lost and unsure of his place in the world. And because of that, he becomes this ultimate cipher for young fans. Those of us who took a lot of crap for reading comics as a kid. And that's what makes him immediately endearing in ways that the others aren't. Reed, you have to warm up to and figure out what his deal is and try to get into his head. Sue, once you get past the idea that she's the mommy of the team and you see what she's capable of, both in power and in personality, she becomes fascinating. Johnny, as I mentioned, Johnny's Johnny. He's fun. He shoots fire, but not really much in the development. But the thing, he was ready-made to be the ambassador of the Marvel Age. And here we're seeing him really give up everything. And now he's the thing again. What does that mean? We're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, let's look at the last leg of this story. The battle comes down to the thing versus the monarch of Latveria throwing everything he can at Ben Grimm. From a hypnosis device, a device that creates rocks out of intensified molecules, even the beams from the fingertips of his armor. In the end, the thing nearly beats Doom to death, destroying his armor, but the ever-loving blue-eyed thing relents at this last moment, and Doom is left to stagger back to his aircraft. Reed offhandedly mentions that Daredevil is patched up and sent home as the thing says that he has finally had enough. Angry that he was forced to give up his humanity and become the thing once again, Ben says that he is through with the Fantastic Four. And the curtain falls on Fantastic Four number 40. I don't know how to say this gently, but the story falls apart completely in the third act. It's a big, long fight scene, which wouldn't be bad, but it's not the most exciting fight. There's nothing visually dynamic about it except for some components in Doom's armor. Yet, the psychology is there. Ben was pushed to the limit. He could have really killed Dr. Doom. That could have been it. And he beats him. He rips the armor apart. And then thanks to the diplomatic immunity, he has to watch Doom slink off. The thing that marked this issue for me was, it's not a victory. It was at best a breaking even. It's sliding out of an ultimate fight. And sure, the FF get their powers back, but the bad guy gets away and the thing is the thing again. Now, for us Daredevil fans, basically Daredevil's dismissed between panels, and we move ahead with Ben's emotional moment. And as expected, as feared by Reed over and over and over again, Ben falls in with the Frightful Four next issue and fights the FF under mind control. He gets better. I didn't have much to say about the third act, so I'm going to move into the final verdict. This was a story that didn't need two issues to be told. It was too decompressed. It could have been one issue packed in and removed some of the flotsam. But Daredevil shows his true colors. He arrived as a lawyer, he stayed as Daredevil, and stuck his neck out for friends. And friends is a very tenuous term, I should use. He knows who the Fantastic Four are in concept, but he's not exactly tight with them. But it shows that Daredevil cares, and he will not give up on what even looks like a lost cause. He goes up against Doctor Doom to help the Fantastic Four. Doctor Doom is a very real threat, and Daredevil totally could have been killed. Easily, without question, without mercy. But he's quickly put out of the picture, and I suspect that's because Kirby actually forgot that Daredevil was in the issue once it came down to the Thing versus Doom. Luckily, Stan was there with some quick dialogue. Now, Kirby's art's always welcome, but the covers, well, they were weak on both issues. And then we have the less than dramatic final fight. It causes this issue to go out on a whimper. In a sentence, if this was a single issue, would have been great. As two, as a two-parter, 
as something people would have waited two months for, it doesn't hit a high note. Which is why I always raise my eyebrow a bit that this was in the best of the Fantastic Four. However, even if it's not one of the best Fantastic Four stories, on September 23rd of 1995, the second season of the UPN's Fantastic Four cartoon adapted this issue for the first episode. This would mark Daredevil's second animated appearance, the first one being in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, in which he appeared as Matt Murdock with one single shot of Daredevil, basically saying he's Daredevil and they might team up someday. They do, just not in that series. Again, as the beginning of Season 2, it substituted Sentinel-looking robots for the Frightful Four, and it began with rescuing Sue from Doom, rather than just accidentally stumbling into the powerless FF. Daredevil was wonderfully voiced by Bill Smitrovich, and he's kind of a that guy. He's been in a lot of stuff, but more as a bit player. But if you look closely, you can see him in a role in the live-action Iron Man movie. I thought that this episode was fantastic and adapted it fairly well beat for beat. And Smitrovich was a much better Daredevil than what the Spider-Man cartoon would provide in about a year after that episode. This was an episode that you can actually find on the Daredevil vs. Spider-Man DVD as an extra. And I would actually definitely recommend the Daredevil vs. Spider-Man DVD, even though I don't like the portrayal, it's good to see Daredevil in his third animated appearance. And even though I said this was a second appearance, it's actually his first full appearance. And it's a great debut, even though he never came back to the show. But apparently that means that even though I wasn't all that impressed with the ending of the story, most people found it vivid enough to have it live on in other forms of media. So with that, we say goodbye to the Fantastic Four and put our focus back on Daredevil, kind of. Next week, we actually return to the pages of Daredevil for the first installment of what I'm going to call the Masked Marauder Trilogy. This will be a set of three episodes that tie into one long storyline, but also tie into episodes three and four of this show. So I'm kind of crossing over with myself, which is very meta. But next week, get ready for Spider-Man and John Romita art when we look at Daredevil issue 16. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his head.